Chapter 4 of Edward I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Caveat. Edward I by Professor T. F. Tout. Chapter 4. The King and His Work. We have now followed with some minuteness the biography of Edward before his accession to the throne. No part of his life throws so great a light on his character and career, or illustrates more clearly the ground on which we reckon Edward among the greatest of English statesmen. His long years of apprenticeship had not simply formed his character. They had also suggested the main lines of the policy on which he to act for the whole of his long reign. It is not too much to say that every important aspect of Edward's work as king had already been foreshadowed in his work as a king's son. He had risen superior to his earlier failures in the field and in the council chamber. His first defeats had given him that power of adapting his tactics to circumstances, which is his chief claim to be called a great commander. The Welsh policy suggested to him by his advisers when yet a mere boy contains in substance the Welsh policy of his reign. His early dealings with the fierce Llewellyn and his early efforts to make his Welsh land shire ground need only a slight development to become the policy which had its final outcome in the defeat and death of the Welsh prince and the annexation of the principality to the crown. In the same way, Edward's early experiences in Gascony suggested to him the whole of his subsequent policy for the consolidation and security of his Aquitanian possessions. Moreover, his constant dealings with the princes of Europe, most of them his near kinfolk, cannot but have brought to before his mind the main principles that able and successful foreign policy which were of the greatest results of his reign and it is already a commonplace that the experience of the Barons' War substantially created the home policy of Edward's later life. To strengthen and develop the royal power, to widen the hold of the king on the nation by taking the people themselves into partnership with him in the administration of his inheritance, to work out under happier auspices the great ideas of Montfort, and to turn the schemes meant to bring about a revolution into devices for the regular government of the realm. To stand forth, above all, as the truly national king, who ruled through the advice of his own nobles and scorned the foreign favourite and parasite, such as were among the main lines of Edward's work as a king. Every detail, almost of his constitutional policy, had already been made clear to him during the life of his father. The lack of good laws during his father's days had impressed upon him the need of a legislation, while the want of good government had made him realise the supreme importance of establishing sound administration, Thus it was, with plans already formed and ambitions already formulated, that Edward entered in 1272 into the great position of an English king. He was already resolved to make England supreme in Britain and England the mediator of Europe. He had already become a national constitutional ruler of a free and high-spirited people. Thirty-three years of battling with the world had now formed both the body and mind of Edward. He looked every inch a king. The chroniclers speak with enthusiasm of the beauty and dignity of his person. He was a man of unusual and commanding height. Like another Saul, he overtopped most of his subjects by a head and shoulders. His frame was cast in a strong but elegant mould and was admirably proportioned. He had the long sinewy arms that make a good swordsman. He had long lean legs which won for him the popular nickname of Longshanks, gave him that firm grip over the saddle that gives the consummate horseman. And all through his life he was as upright as a dart. His chest was broad and vaulted. Constant exercise and incessant activity 
kept down any disposition to corpulence, and down to his death he retained the slim, regular proportions of his youth. His flowing hair shone in extreme youth like burnished silver. It gradually assumed a yellow tinge, and by the time he has reached manhood, had attained a deep black colour, which again turned in old age to a snowy whiteness. He never showed any tendency to baldness, and the white hair of his age was as thick and abundant as the yellow tresses of his youth. His forehead was broad and high. His features were refined and regular. The only thing that marred their perfect beauty was a slight droop of the left eyelid, which he had inherited from his father. His dark eyes, soft and dove-like when he was at rest, shot forth fire like the eyes of a lion when he was moved to anger. They remained undinned to extreme old age. His nose was large, well-shaped and aquiline. His teeth remained strong and firm down to the day of his death. His complexion was dark, clear and pale, was thought to indicate a choleric temperament. His voice had a slight stammer in it, but when animated he could quite overcome this impediment, and speak with a simple and natural eloquence that often moved his susceptible auditors to tears. Edward's character was cast in a grand and simple mould. His general instincts were high-minded, noble and generous. Like most medieval heroes, he was a man of strong emotions, and the rough wear and tear of a long life did not destroy though perhaps they deadened the deep affection and the loving heart half hidden by his pride and passion. He was the best of sons, fathers and husbands. He was the most faithful and generous of friends. His chief fault in those relations was his slowness to see anything blameworthy of those whom he loved, even in those who rendered him useful service. His private life was absolutely pure and without reproach. His public action, or with Abel, was, with a few exceptions, strictly upright and honourable. He had almost a passion for truth and justice, and it was not for nothing that keep troth was inscribed upon his tomb. A character so strong, a will so firm as Edward's, could not be without its faults. Many of these proceeded from the extraordinary impetuosity and violence which lay at the bottom of Edward's temperament. This disposition accounts for a good deal of the wanton and brutal violence of the doings, which so scandalised the right-thinking men in his extreme youth. It accounts for many of those grave defects of characters, brought out with such uncompromising clearness and precision by the nameless partisan of Simon de Montfort, who wrote that Song of Lose, which best explains to us the standpoint of the baronial party. To this hostile writer Edward was a lion in pride and fierceness, not slow in attacking the strongest places, and fearing the onslaught of no man. But there was a less noble side to his character. He was, says the songwriter, a panther in inconsistency and changeableness. When he was in a strait, he promises whatever you wish, but as soon as he escapes, he repudiates his promise. In this respect, Edward never quite got the better of the evil tendencies of his youth. The violation of his oath after the capture of Gloucester in 1264 is too faithfully paralysed by the treacherous way in which, a few years before his death, he obtained papal absolution from his oath to observe Magna Carta, and the Forest Charter, as enlarged and developed in 1297. Moreover, Edward was always excessively rash, impulsive, hot-headed, passionate, and even vindictive. Yet a humble submission, or the frank acknowledgement of an offence, at once mollified him, however furious was his wrath. One day, when he was a young man, he was hawking on the banks of a certain river. One of his companions posted on the other bank of the stream to that occupied by Edward, blunderingly let free a hawk, which seized a wild duck amidst the osseo beds. Edward grew angry, abused and threatened his follower. But the careless faultman, seeing that neither bridge nor ford was near, answered impudently, It is well for me that the river divides us. Edward burst into a furious rage, plunged with his horse into the unknown depths of the stream, 
and having successfully crossed over, climbed with difficulty up the steep bank hollowed out by the action of the water. The luckless follower fled in terror, but Edward pursued him with drawn sword and soon caught up with him. But his anger at once ended when the man uncovered his head and knelt humbly to implore his master's forgiveness. Edward put back his sword in the scabbard, and soon Lord and follower were back on the river bank, seeking with the utmost harmony to bring back the strayed hawk. Many years later, Edward was moved to anger by the clumsiness of one of his squires attending him on the occasion of the marriage of his daughter Margaret. He seized a stick and soundly belaboured the unlucky squire with it, inflicting upon him such an injury that, when the fit of temper was over, he heartily repented of his violence and sought to heal his servant's wound by a present of a very considerable sum of thirteen pounds, six shillings and eightpence. Edward hated his enemies quite as heartily as he loved his friends, and liked power so well that he grew quite mad at the least opposition or contradiction. He was always terribly in earnest, and quite convinced of the honour and integrity of his own ends. He was always ready to impute unworthy motives to his opponents, and was, in fact, opposed so unscrupulously that he often had good reason for his worst suspicions. Edward also possessed that strange power often found in temperaments like his, persuading himself that what he desired was right, that the means which he selected to attain a good end were necessarily consecrated by the excellence of his object. The wiles or tricks, sang the partisan critic of his youth, by which he advanced, he calls prudence, and the way whereby he attains his end, crooked though it may be, seems to him straight and open. Whatever he likes, he says is lawful, and he thinks that he is released from the law, as though he were greater than the king. Edward was never a very reflective or a thoughtful man. Like many great men of action, he took the course that seemed to him the most likely to lead him strict to his end, and did not ponder too much over its lawfulness. But so far as he pondered over his courses at all, he sought honestly to live according to the law, and there have been a few prophecies more signally disortified than that of the writer of the Song of Lewes, who foretold that Edward's reign would be a most miserable one for England, insomuch as his wish was to be king above the law. Edward was proud of his high standard of honour and truthfulness, as compared with his contemporaries, his boast is in no wise a vain one. But of those who saw in Edward a lawless self-seeker who was but blind judges, still more have those erred who saw in him a cold-blooded, calculating and scheming lawyer, heedless of justice as long as he could get formal right on his side. It is not in such ways that the right clue can be obtained for the appreciation of his ardent and impetuous character. Edward was very conscious of his royal dignity, and proud and ambitious to a no ordinary degree but there was little that was mean or sordid even in the lowest of his ambitions. The aristocratic contempt for men of mean birth and humble station, which had been so unpleasant a feature of his early manhood, he almost outlived, though at times of danger and difficulty, when the Welsh troops showed signs of mutiny before Falkirk, or when the weavers of Ghent, rising against the oppressions of its soldiers, threatened his very life, it flashed forth again with something of its old insolence and scorn. But there was very little in Edward of that miserable class feeling that was so unlovely a feature among the knights and gentlemen that supported the court of his grandson. Edward loved his people and possessed many popular qualities that endeared him to them. Though constantly beset by troubles and difficulties, he seldom lost his cheerfulness, except a sorrow for the loss of those dear to him. Down to an advanced age, he joined in the rough and not very refined practical jokes and merriments of medieval society. On one Easter Monday, he suffered five ladies of the court to make him their mock prisoner, and bought him redemption by a liberal present to his captors. Nor was he less gracious to his followers of low degree. One day, in a merry mood, as he was setting out for the hunt, he gave his horse to his washerwoman, Matilda of Waltham, on the condition of her riding a race on the king's hunter and defeating the other competitors. 
His ready eloquence was in itself a means of delighting his people. No less commendable were his earnestness and indefatigability at the seat of judgment. He delighted in unravelling a knotty point of law, and prided himself upon his zeal for the poor and oppressed. He gloried in his reputation for clemency. He really sought to identify himself with every rank of his people, and this great endeavour made him a thoroughly national king. Edward had the good luck to pass through a sterner discipline and a stricter apprenticeship, and commonly fought the lot of those who were called to ascend an hereditary throne. He thus learned to put a curb upon his feelings, and repress the first rush of his angry passions in a way that speaks most strongly for the strength of his character and the nobleness of his aims. His self-restraint in his middle life was, for such a man, admirable. As misfortunes gathered around him, he became less able to conceal or check his emotions, but down to the last he withstood the opposition that might well have ruined the temper of a calmer and milder man. Not only had he to face the opposition of large sections of his subjects and the enmity of powerful kings and nations, but his private affairs were always made miserable by the millstone of debt which hung around his neck from the first entrance into public life, and from which he could never free himself down to his dying day. The burden of which Edward had inherited from his father was sufficiently overwhelming. He increased it by the obligations which he had been forced to incur during his crusade. When he came to the throne, he found himself hopelessly in the hands of the greedy companies of Lombard bankers, who began to push themselves into positions which had hitherto been monopolised by Jewish usurers. In after years, Edward formed so many great designs that he was always more and more in want of money. From this perpetual indebtedness sprang half of the defects of Edward's character, and more than half of the difficulties of his reign. Edward's poverty accounts for his troubles with the Londoners, his eagerness to open up new taxes, and the ever-increasing discontent of his subjects. He handed on the burden to his son, and the weight which the great father had hardly been able to bear proved too overwhelming for his weak and incompetent successor. The limited character of Edward's means made necessary a life of the utmost frugality and sobriety. Edward's own personal tastes drew him strongly in the same direction. He was always rigidly economical, and even on occasions parsimonious. But on state occasions his hospitality was truly regal, and he found enough money to keep up a good stud of horses, though he was ever lavish in giving them away to his friends and kinsfolk. He was particularly bountiful to poor knights, feeling the full force of the strong tie which bound the knighthood of Christendom together, a single brotherhood of equals. The simplicity of his attire suggested the simplicity of his daily life. After his coronation, Edward never once wore his crown, thinking his dignity which it gave to his royal state was more than counterbalanced by the heaviness of a great bauble. He wore the plainest clothes. He did not affect the royal purple, but like a common man, was clad in a plain short-sleeved tunic bordered with fur and all of the same colour. One day he was asked by a hermit why he affected such ordinary garb. I should not be a better man, answered Edward, however splendidly I was dressed. The same simplicity was manifested in all his habits of life. But for all that, Edward was keenly conscious of his royal dignity, and there were few who could venture to presume upon his easy familiarity. His court was very free from the luxury and extravagance which are the besetting sins of courts. Though many of Edward's followers were vicious and corrupt men, they were, with hardly an exception, hard workers and earnest politicians. The tournament in early life, hunting and hawking until the end of his career, were Edward's favourite diversions. As a sportsman, his special delight was in chasing down deer on horseback and catching them up, slaughtering them with his sword. His strong love of the chase made him jealous of the Norman kings in keeping up his forests and maintaining the forest laws in their old oppressive rigour. 
His constant indulgences in field sport and manly exercises secured him splendid health, though his infancy had been sickly, though his wound in the Holy Land gave him trouble for many years. The same careful way of life, combined with a strict frugality and temperance, secured for Edward a green old age. He had attained what in the Middle Ages was the very advanced age of sixty-seven, before there were any signs of his constitution beginning to break down. Edward was deeply and unaffectedly religious. His piety is shown not only in his assiduity and his attendance at Mass, and his zeal in going on pilgrimages, but in his large and unostentatious charities, all the more creditable when we remember his chronic state of debt, and in the whole tone and tenor of his daily life. Straightened as were his resources, Edward was able to make grants to the two English universities, to the Knights of St John, and to the many famous monasteries such as Durham, Glastonbury, Westminster and St Albans. He was the refounder of the Cistern Abbey of Conway when the needs of the Welsh policy involved the absorption of the whole home of the monks in his new castle and fortifications. He contributed largely towards the cost of the new church and buildings erected by the monks on the opposite bank of the Conway River at Mayham. But his great work as a monastic patron was the foundation of the Cistercian Abbey of Vale Royal in a deep and secluded hollow in the Valley of the Weaver in the very heart of his own earldom of Chester. This pious undertaking Edward began in 1266, in fulfilment of a vow which he had made when exposed to a great peril of shipwreck. But lack of means made the progress of the work slow, and it was not until 1277 that the monks were able to enter into the full possession of their founder's bounty. But while Edward thus practically showed his sympathy for the older religious orders, he was, like most men of his age, strongly under the influence of the medicum friars. His confessors were generally Dominicans, but the Franciscans, in whose great church in London he treasured up the heart of his beloved Eleanor, was also largely in his confidence. Like a good Englishman, Edward reverenced most of all saints in English birth, such as St John of Beverley, to whose shrine he was never weary of making pilgrimages, and above all, St Edward the Confessor, his namesake and predecessor. His religion was that of half-martial kind, which is so characteristic of the early Middle Ages, but it was also becoming more rare owing to the new types of spiritual perfection held up by the saints among the mendicant orders. This element gave a reality and a fervidness to Edward's constant aspirations after a crusade. What in the mouth of Philip the Fair or Clement V was the merest hypocrisy or conventionality was to Edward an honest and sincere recognition of the clear ideal of the duty of a Christian knight, and Edward was all too ready to read his crusading ambitions into everyday wars. Llewellyn or Robert Bruce were to him men accursed by Holy Church, and he saw too readily a high religious impulse in what was largely the prompting of his own ambition and revenge. But a respect for ecclesiastical authority, which hampered his dealings with popes and archbishops, was at least a very real thing. Not even the bare-faced partisanship of a series of fiercely Gulfic popes, not even the persistence and wearing opposition with Edward's own prelates, so constantly offered to his policy, could quite eradicate from Edward's mind the deep lessons of respect for the authority of the Holy See and the spiritual independence of the English Episcopate, which had been so firmly ingrained into his mind in youth. But Edward, with all his spirit of reverence, was singularly free from the grosser superstitions of his time. On one occasion, a beggar pretended that his sight had been restored through his prayers at the tomb of Henry III and Queen Eleanor of Provence, and was delighted that this miracle attested her dead husband's claim to sanctity. But Edward drove the beggar away in anger, saying, My father would rather have had such a lying knave blinded than give him back his sight. 
Edward piously saw in all the many hairbreadth escapes of his adventurous life the direct finger of providence, and with something of a fatalist contempt of danger, exposed himself to the worst risks of battle and siege. When his horse was shot by a missile from Stirling Castle, his followers begged him to withdraw from the range of the walls, but Edward answered in biblical phrase, A thousand shall fall beside me, and ten thousand at my right hand, but their arrows shall not come nigh unto me to do me hurt, for the Lord is with me. One day in his youth he was playing chess with a certain knight in a vaulted chamber. Without any particular reason, he arose from his seat and went to the other end of the room. Thereupon a huge stone crashed down from the roof, destroying the chair on which Edward had been sitting. He attributed his preservation to Our Lady of Walsingham, whom he afterwards held in special honour. Edward was preeminently a man of action, but he was by no means altogether lacking in intellectual and artistic tastes. He certainly had a familiar knowledge of English, French and Latin. Possibly he also knew Spanish, in which tongue he sometimes corresponded with his brother-in-law, Alfonso of Castile. He was no great lover of books, and no very bountiful patron of men of letters. Yet he seems to have had some taste for the romances of chivalry, delighting in the legends of knights and paladins, in histories of such as those of Tancred the Crusader, in devotional treatises, and in books on agriculture. It was from a manuscript belonging to Edward at the time of his crusade, the Rustican of Pisa made his well-known abridgment of the vast cycle of Breton romances, a work which attained a great success, and which, translated into Italian, afforded the material for a large number of poems. Nor should Edward's interest in English history be forgotten, or his care for the safe preservation of the National Archives under proper custody. He was much more a patron of art than of letters, showing a particular taste for richly decorated sculpture, as seen in the crosses commemorating Queen Eleanor, and perhaps better in the exquisite statuary on the magnificent tombs of his father, wife and brother in Westminster Abbey, the work apparently of an Italian artist. He completed his father's rebuilding of Westminster, but lack of means prevented his indulging in the expensive taste of building on large scale. He was also fond of music, supplementing his English trumpeters and harpers with German fiddlers, and rejoicing even his hostile progresses in Scotland when seven women met him on the wayside and sang before him the songs of their country as they had been wont to do in the days of King Alexander. There was no need to expatiate upon Edward's claims to statesmanship. Contemporaries compared him to Henry II, and certainly no other one of our earlier kings can be rightly put in the same high place as Edward. But though there is a real relation between the work of Henry and that of Edward, and though Henry was perhaps the greater and more original mind of the two, yet Edward's task was complicated by difficulties of a subtle kind to which Henry had been a complete stranger. It was Edward's difficult task to adjust the despotism which Henry had set up to meet the national aspirations at liberty, and the popular cry to control the state, which in the 12th century had not yet arisen. That Edward abundantly succeeded in this difficult task will be sufficiently clear in nearly every page of the history of his reign. Without any great originality of character, without that insight and foresight which geniuses alone can give, Edward was able to apply to the great problems of statecraft an intellect of a high order, clear, logical, orderly and decisive. But his character was stronger than his intellect, and his tenacity of purpose and pertinacity in conduct were seldom excelled by the excitable kings and statesmen of the Middle Ages. It is a commonplace to dwell upon the legislative mind of Edward, but it is a very superficial view of the great king's character that regards him simply as a mere lawyer, even a great lawyer like his friend, Bishop Bernal. It would be true to say that Edward's chief merit as a legislator is that he knew how to follow the lines laid down by his ministers and judges. 
Statue book tells us of the motives and springs of conduct, but it's hard not to believe that the main merit of Edward's work as a lawgiver belongs to his advisers. Theirs at least was the initiative. It is merit enough in a born king that he knew whose advice to follow and in what direction he was to go. The personal characteristics of Edward come out even more in his statecraft and his generalship than in his legislation. As a soldier, Edward's character is perhaps most completely seen. He was the true knight of chivalry, brave to recklessness, careless of his life, careless of all ulterior consequences, throwing his whole soul into the fierce rush of the frugal charge which scattered the Londoners at Lewes, or wrestling hand to hand in long and doubtful struggle with the fierce Adam Goudon or the treacherous Count of Chalon. But with increasing experience, the knightly hero grew into a real general. The same power of self-restraint which marked every side of Edward's character enabled him to curb the rash valour which had learned in the tawny and tilt-yard. And aspire to a degree of tactical and strategic skill, rare indeed in the age in which he lived. His greatest military qualities were his capacity of profiting by adverse experience, and his rare skill in varying his method of warfare to meet the tactics adopted by the enemy. In his continental campaigns, Edward remained, to the end, a mere captain of feudal chivalry. But he very clearly realised there were times and places where the heavily armed mounted knight had little military value. His early defeats by the light-armed and nimble Welsh footmen taught him the value of a dexterous and daring irregular infantry, and suggested to him that the policy of carrying on Welsh warfare like a great siege, which proved so irresistible in 1277 and 1282, Moreover, Edward paid a high tribute to the conquered Welsh in the large use which he made of them in all his subsequent campaigns, and notably in the wars in Scotland and Flanders. In the same way, Edward had the quickness and the skill to borrow from Montfort the tactics that had proved fatal to his own and his father's cause at Lewes, and bettering his lesson, he turned his uncle's teachings against him in his cleverly won victory at Evesham. In his old age, Edward was not too proud to learn another lesson. He had the eyes to discern that the close array of the Scottish infantry at Falkirk could not be broken by the mere rush of a cavalry charge. He won the crowning victory of his life by skilful employment of archers to break the squares of the Scots with their missiles. His combination of the heavy cavalry of England with the light infantry and archers of Wales prepared the way for a more complete working out of this system, which resulted from the famous English victories during the Hundred Years' War with France. The two chief lines of military progress in subsequent generations lay in the development of a trained force of infantry in the increase of the efficiency of the bowmen. In both these respects, Edward is a forerunner, though perhaps a half-blind one, of the improvements in the art of war which marked the next two centuries. The great men of the 13th century embodied the best ideals of the Middle Ages, but there is something modern in their character and ambitions. Edward himself partakes of this twofold nature. As a man, he seems almost purely medieval, yet as an English statesman, he could conceive the idea of a national state ruled by a strong king, but were controlled by a popular parliament. As a diplomatist, he could grasp the conception of a European equilibrium to be maintained by a judicious policy of mediation on the part of his island kingdom. As a British patriot, he longed for the time when England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland were all parts of the same kingdom. As a warrior, he dimly foreshadowed the battle array of Cressy, or Agincourt, and many-sided as was his activity. There was a perfect balance and harmony between the various elements of his policy. His eulogialists and detractors have, as a rule, fixed on one side of his policy and confined their praise or blame to this side alone. It is only when we take in his character as a whole that we fully realise 
how real are his claims to be regarded as a greatest of the Plantagenets. No rulers of England, save William the Conqueror, Henry II, Henry VIII and Cromwell can be compared with him, either as with regards to force of character and strength of intellect, or as regards the greatness and permanence of their influence on the history of our land. Edward's family and court next demand our attention. He was strongly amenable to domestic influences and the weak and tender sides of his father's character, continued to have an influence for good over him many years after his experience had taught him the folly and evil of his father's policy. His mother, Eleanor of Provence, continued to have a strong hold over him until her death in 1291. His close affection and devotion to his first wife, Eleanor of Castile, need not be further dwelt upon. He was warmly attached to his sister, Margaret, the wife of Alexander III of Scotland, and his care for the welfare of his nephew, John of Brittany, is the best proof that Edward was equally devoted to his other sister, Beatrice, the wife of the Duke of Brittany. Edward's only brother, Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, was not quite the man to exercise a strong influence over anyone, but Edward's care for his brother's interest is seen in the vast estates which gradually accumulated round the founder of the greatest baronial house of medieval England, and in the trust with which he allowed Edmund to manage his diplomacy and lead his armies at the most critical period of his reign. Edmund himself was Earl of Lancaster and Leicester and Derby, receiving after Evesham the confiscating the titles of Simon de Montfort and Robert Freres, and by arranging the marriage of Edmund's heir, Thomas, to the heiress of the most trusted follower, Henry Lacey, the Earl of Lincoln, Edward still further increased the greatness of the Lancastrian house, and made possible that extraordinary combination of power which Earl Thomas, as the head of the Lords or Danes, was able to bring to bear against Edward II, nor was Edward inattentive to his more distant kinfolk. His uncle, Richard, King of the Romans, had real influence over him. He was devotedly attached to Richard's eldest son, his cousin, Henry of Almain, and strove hard to avenge his tragic death. Richard's younger son and successor, Earl Edmund of Cornwall, had always a high place in his cousin's affections and counsels. Edward was the father of a large family, though but few of his children attained manhood, and only three reached middle life. By Eleanor, he had thirteen children, four sons and nine daughters. But of the four sons, the two eldest, John, 1266-1272, and Henry, died 1274, both died in early boyhood. Alfonso, the third son, born in 1273 at Bayonne, died in 1284, a few months after the birth of his youngest brother, Edward of Carnarvon, born 1284, less fortunate in his unglorious life than his brothers in their early grave. Of Eleanor's nine daughters, four died as children. Of those that survived, the eldest was Eleanor, born 1264, and married to the Count of Bar in 1293. She died in her 35th year. The next was Joan of Acre, born in 1272, during her father's crusade, and destined in her childhood to be the bride of Hartman, the son of Rudolf of Habsburg. She was married in 1290 to Earl Gilbert of Gloucester. Edward's old ally in the struggle against Montfort, who was nearly 30 years older than herself. After Gloucester's death in 1295, Joan gave herself to the simple knight, Ralph of Monthemia. Edward was very angry at his daughter's disparagement and threw Ralph into prison, but Joan demanded herself with great spirit and energy, and her father, who loved his children, soon relented, and finally gave his low-born son-in-law the custody of the great Gloucester inheritance. She died in the same year as her father, transmitting to her son, the young Earl Gilbert, who died so gallantly on the field of Bannockburn, some spark of her father's great spirit. 
The next daughter, Margaret, 1275 to 1318, married Duke John of Brabant in 1290 and lived to the then respectable age of 43. Mary, the fourth daughter, born in 1279, was doomed from early childhood to take the veil at Amesbury to please her grandmother, Eleanor of Provence, who ended her life in semi-monastic retirement in that famous convent. Edward was unwilling to sacrifice the child, but yielded to his mother's pressure. She attained at least her 54th year at an age far greater than that reached by her brothers and sisters. The youngest daughter, Elizabeth, surnamed the Welsh woman, born at Rudland in 1282, was married first to John, Count of Holland, 1297, and secondly to Humphrey, Earl of Hereford, 1302. She died in 1316. Eleanor of Castile died in 1290, and after nine years of solitude, Edward married a second time in 1299. But this second marriage was partly, at least, the result of political calculations, and Edward's second queen, Margaret of France, the sister of Philip the Fair, is a far more shadowy figure in her history than the gracious Eleanor of Castile. She is vaguely described as a fair and marvellously virtuous lady, a girl of 18, married to an old man of 60, who could never stand in the place of the faithful partner of Edward's youth. She bore Edward three children. The eldest, Thomas, born at Brotherton in Yorkshire in 1300, became Earl of Norfolk and died in 1338. The second, Edmund, was born in Woodstock in 1301 and was made Earl of Kent. His unlucky end in 1330 is one of the worst stains on the regency of Mortimer and Isabella on behalf of the young Edward III. The third child of the second marriage was a daughter named Eleanor, born 1306, who died when quite a child. Edward's plans for the settlement of his family are of great historical importance. The younger sons he provided with English earldoms, while the daughters were married to foreign princes whose alliance was of importance, or to great English earls, that their tendency to join the opposition ranks might be counterbalanced by their close personal connection with the royal house. In this respect, Edward's policy anticipates that of Edward III, but like the more famous family settlements of Edward III, it was something of a failure. Edward's ministers fill a large part of the history of his reign, though the scanty chronicles and the bare formal legal records from which we get most of our information make it hard for us to assign to the king and his helpers their due share of merit, and render it almost impossible for us to get any very clear notion of the personal characteristics of the great statesmen that stood round Edward's throne. Edward's own kinfolk take a considerable position among his counsellors. His brother, Edmund of Lancaster, his representative in Guillon, his cousin Edmund of Cornwall, the regent during his long absence between 1286 and 1289, his nephew, John of Brittany, his faithful vice-regent during the most critical period of his dealings with Scotland, all served Edward with the utmost loyalty and were entirely trusted by him. Even the foreign relatives, who, after the storms of the Barons' Wars, scarcely dared show their faces in England, still continued to enjoy Edward's confidence abroad. All through his reign, the Lusagnians helped in Gascony, his cousin, Count Amadeus, the Great of Savoy, rendered most important assistance in his later foreign policy. From that same Savoyard land came John de Grailly, the faithful seneschal of Aquitaine, and Otho of Grandison, or Grandson, who came from the town famous in after ages for the crushing defeat of Charles the Bold by the Swiss Confederates, and who was a very important figure in the diplomatic history of the latter part of Edward's reign. At home... Edward's chief ministers were Englishmen, for the most part ecclesiastics, though of gentle birth, 
they but seldom belong to the highest orders of society. Foremongst among them is Robert Burrell, the Shropshire squire's son, who became the most dexterous of chancery lawyers, and who, attaching himself to Edward when he was still but Earl of Chester and Duke of Aquitaine, remained united to him by the closest ties of personal friendship and harmony of policy till his death in 1292. Edward loved Beryl so well that he strove, even before his father's death, to make him Archbishop of Canterbury, and as soon as he became king, secured for him the Chancellorship and Bishopric of Bath and Wells. Burnell was undoubtedly a consummate lawyer, a skilful diplomatist, and a thoroughly faithful minister, but his private character was stained by licentiousness and greed, that stand in strong contrast to the purity and economy of a king. Even his wonderful munificence did not make Burrell popular. Yet there is no single minister of whom we can say more clearly that he was a necessary element in the greatness of the reign. He probably deserves the largest share of the credit of the great legislative achievements of Edward I. Burnell is the highest type of Edward's lawyer statesman. Next to him comes John Kirby, Bishop of Ely, a subtle financier, whose doings we shall often again have to occasion to refer. Judges like Hengsham and Britain, and civilians like the Italian legist Francesco Accursi, of whom we shall speak later, filled a subordinate position in Edward's court, while giving technical details and scientific form to their master's work, had no great share in determining its spirit. After Burnell, the three leading ministers of Edward were Henry Lacey, Earl of Lincoln, Anthony Beck, Bishop of Durham, and Walter Langdon, Bishop of Lichfield. Henry Lacey, Earl of Lincoln, was the only one of the great earls who remained unwaveringly faithful to Edward, and who, despite his great name and vast estates, never shirked labour or trouble in the services of his master. He was courteous, handsome and active, so brave in war as ripe in counsel. He fought for Edward's cause both as general and as a diplomatist. In Wales, Scotland and France we find constant traces of his activity. When Edward became king, Lincoln had but barely attained his majority, until his death in 1311, he never faltered in his allegiance, his regard for the father leading him to give what support he could to Edward II, even when the young king most flagrantly went against his father's policy. Unfortunate in his domestic life, Lincoln lost his two sons by violent deaths and by the surrender of his two earldoms of Lincoln and Salisbury to his daughter Alice, whom Edward married to his own nephew, Thomas of Lancaster. The old earl handed over to the royal house the great estate all through his life had been devoted to the Lord's service of the crown. Anthony Beck, Bishop of Durham, is another striking figure among Edward's ministers. The son of a wealthy Lincolnshire lord, he was elevated when still young to the Palatine See of Durham. His love of pomp, luxury and munificence well become the beholder of one of the greatest posts of the church, and one who was also secular lord of the rich county of Durham, which he ruled as freely with his crozier as Edward ruled his patrimony of Chester by his sword. Beck's attitude to politics, like that of Earl of Lincoln, was essentially that of a great magnate. He was, for many years, as faithful as Burnell himself to his devotion to the royal service. An honorary distinguished from the Bishop of Bath by the purity of his private life. Yet Beck was a soldier and a statesman rather than a bishop, and never shone to great advantage than when, at the head of his knights, did good service for his master in the campaigns against the Scots, or when, at the head of a pompous embassy, he built up a close alliance between Edward and Adolf, king of the Romans. But Beck never forgot that he was a great prelate, and towards the end of his reign he joined the clerical opposition and forwarded the favour of the king. His elder brother, Thomas Beck, bishop of St David's, 
was also a product of great importance during this reign, doing nearly as much for the king in Wales as Anthony a few years later did for the king in Scotland. Walter Langdon is as much the minister of the end of Edward's reign as Burnell is the statesman of his earlier years. He began life as a poor man, became a clerk of the king's chancery, and after Burnell's death, drifted gradually into the position of Edward's chief advisor. In 1295 he was made treasurer, and in 1296 bishop of Lichfield. He kept the treasury until Edward's death. Like that of Burnell, his private character was not beyond reproach, but like Burnell, he served his master with unswerving fidelity. He shared very largely in the unpopularity which Edward contracted in later violent years of his reign, and was made the scapegoat of his master's policy after the old king's death. Edward's chief ministers were of exemplary fidelity, but one of the king's constant difficulties was with his subordinate agents, whose violence and greed often defeated the king's best-laid schemes, and involved their master in odium that, though natural, was hardly deserved. Even the lawyers required the constant eye of the master to keep them in order. During Edward's long absence abroad, between 1286 and 1289, the royal official committed so many misdeeds that the king on his return was obliged to make a stern example. He cleared out the judicial bench of the greedy and venal judges who, with Hingham at their head, had rested the law to make their own fortune. Even less satisfactory were the ruffianly bailiffs and sheriffs, whose misrule gave the lie to Edward's policy of sound government and equal justice in Wales. More hated still were the close-fisted Italian merchants who farmed the king's revenue and whose expulsion from the realm was one of the chief demands made by the people when Edward's death brought about a new period of weak rule. But in no medieval country were things any better than in the England of Edward I. Even the trained clerks and knights of the French royal household conceived that their devotion to the king privileged them to commit any acts of violence they thought fit among his subjects. Such was the king, his family and his court, called to the throne in 1272. Edward first set foot in England in 1274. The first half of his reign saw him mainly occupied with the reduction of North Wales and the carrying out of a great series of legislative changes. He was also very busy with his elaborate and successful foreign policy, to which, after the settlement of Wales, he was able to devote a more exclusive attention. Hence his long absence from England from 1286 to 1289. His return was followed by the last great memorials of his legislation. The second period of Edward's reign begins about 1290, his chief occupation was now the attempted conquest and settlement of Scotland, a task complicated by rebellion in Wales and by the vigorous attack of Philip the Fair on Gascony. Moreover, Edward was now confronted by the revival of the baronial opposition which forced upon him constitutional changes, whose completion is one of the greatest results of the second half of his reign. A fresh trouble arose from the clerical opposition that, already troublesome in Edward's earlier years, now came to a head. The result tried the king's severest energies, but he, but he never succumbed to his difficulties, and though he died with his work all undone, he left the impress of his mind in action on every branch of the national life. It is now our task to go over in more detail the history thus outlined in brief, but for the first period of the reign it is most convenient to take each aspect of Edward's policy separately and devote distinct chapters to his foreign policy, his Welsh policy, his legislation, his dealings with the estates and the working out of the parliamentary system, and the beginnings of his troubles in Scotland. After 1292, another course will be advisable. The complex troubles which now beset the king can only be fully realised if we follow a more chronological method and see, year by year, how Edward's dealing with Scotland, France, the baronage and the church 
were all woven together in one inextricable whole and acted and reacted upon each other. When both sides of our task are done, we shall be in a better position to measure his claims to be a great English statesman. End of chapter 4「But it is a very superficial view of the great king's character. She died in the same year as her father, transmitting to her son, the young Earl Gilbert, who died so gallantly on the field of Bannockburn, some spark of her father's great spirit.'